Did you know CPAs work around the clock on taxes, audits? Yes, it's quite a shock. But business owners, they've got a dream. More tax saving strategies, that's what they need. Welcome to Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of Proactive Tax Strategies. I'm Patrice Sikora. Now, today we have an amazing topic lined up for you, premium finance life insurance for wealth growth. Our host, Ken New, owner of Pinnacle Financial Wealth Management and team-based model consultant, enjoys diving deep into the world of tax strategies. And today we have a special guest with us, Darren Sugiyama, founder of Lionsmark Capital. Mr. Sugiyama started his own employee benefits firm in 2003 called Apex and later founded Lions Mark Capital in 2016. And it is now one of the most dominant premium financing intermediary firms in the life insurance industry. Darren is also an internationally acclaimed 11-time author, business coach, and mentor. Without further ado, Ken, just let me hand it over to you to kick things off and take it away. Yeah, thank you, Patrice. Welcome, everyone. And welcome to Proactive Tax Strategies. I'm your host, Ken New. So today we're going to dive into an intriguing subject, premium financing, and the role that it plays in tax strategies. So joining us is one of our virtual family office experts and an expert in the field, Darren Sujiyama. Darren, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, terrific. Um, so let's get right to it here. Um, what? exactly do you do and you know i i know that everyone knows life insurance has premiums and advanced strategies can have rather large premiums so what exactly is it that you do and uh and talk to us about uh premium financing because that's kind of that area of expertise for you sure so i'm what they call a premium financing intermediary and what that means is I work with investment advisors, uh, life insurance uh, agents, uh, CPAs, estate planning attorneys all over the country. And they bring their clients to me uh, to do pretty much one thing and one thing only. And that is to design the most prudent way to fund an extremely large life insurance policy. Uh, these policies on the low end can be uh, as low as $10 million, uh, as high as you know pushing $100 million. So this is really kind of a, a wealthy clients type of strategy that they'll use um, typically to fund the estate tax liability that the next generation is going to incur uh, when they inherit their parents' uh, you know, wealth, uh, their overall estate. So oftentimes life insurance is, is a great way to fund that uh, liquidity event uh, that's going to happen in the future in their, with their impending death. Where premium financing comes in is the concept is not all that different than, say, purchasing real estate using a mortgage loan, right? You're using a third party uh, banks uh, or lenders uh, capital uh, to fund this asset, uh, largely because the client wants their liquid capital working elsewhere. Maybe it's in their business or maybe it's in some sort of alternative investment. So oftentimes it's just a more efficient way uh, for a wealthy individual to uh, to purchase a very large life insurance policy. Yeah, yeah. So, 
Who exactly would this be appropriate for? I mean, when we talk about wealthy people, 10 million to 100 million, that's a pretty big spread there. Who's the typical client that, and what's the circumstance that that would be appropriate for them? And maybe even who it's not for to reemphasize that. Sure. Sure. You know, oftentimes when people ask me what exactly I do for a living, uh, starting off with uh, talking about life insurance is an easy way to uh, bore them to death. So, and that's really kind of uh, short changing what it is that uh, this type of strategy actually does for a wealthy family. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Let's say uh, you have a family's net worth is uh, a little over $100 million. Under current tax law, uh, they're able to pass a certain amount on to generation two untaxed, but every dollar above that threshold is taxed at a rate of 40%. The challenge that a lot of these wealthy families have is that on a hundred plus million dollar uh, net worth, uh, oftentimes a lot of that estate's value is in real estate. It is uh, largely in the valuation of the family business. So these are two uh, very illiquid assets. What happens upon death of both the, the patriarch and the matriarch of the family is that when generation two inherits that estate, uh, they have nine months to pay that 40% tax bill. So you're talking about you know, roughly $40 million. The challenge is that a uh, $100 million estate oftentimes does not have $40 million in liquid cash to pay the IRS. Oftentimes what will happen is the uh, inheriting children uh, adult children will fight each other to the death over which assets to sell. So as an example, let's let's say you have uh, the firstborn son uh, and he's running the family business. He's been working side by side with his father from the very beginning. Uh, the family uh, business is essentially his baby. Uh, he certainly doesn't want to sell shares of the family business, right? That's that's kind of his, uh, his, his baby. And let's say his younger sister who is smarter and more talented than him, got passed up by their father to run the business. So his sister hates the family business. She despises the family business. Uh, so she could care less about that. She would love to sell the family business. But perhaps she has a strong emotional attachment to the family vacation home in the Hamptons because that's where they spent their summers growing up. She doesn't want to sell the, uh, the family vacation house. And then let's say she has a younger brother living in Miami. He's uh, single and ready to mingle. He's uh, living in the, the penthouse paid for by his parents. Uh, he's hanging out on the gazillion foot yacht with a dozen supermodels, uh, you know, living the single life. Well, he doesn't want to give up all the toys that come uh, with his single life. So you have uh, two brothers and one sister that are going to fight each other to the death practically over which assets to sell to pay this uh, $40 million tax bill. It can really, I mean, the, the the financial side of it is devastating enough, but what's really devastating is uh, the disintegration of the relationships between those siblings. Uh, these are rich people problems, obviously, or uh, uber wealthy people problems, but problems nonetheless. What life insurance can oftentimes do is provide that liquidity uh, to pay that impending uh, IRS tax bill. So a family like that may opt to purchase a $40 million life insurance policy um, on the patriarch and the matriarch of the family so that when the last spouse dies, uh, that $40 million death benefit pays out to the trust and then the trust can pay uh, the 40% in estate taxes uh, due. So 
though I say I'm in the premium finance life insurance business, what I'm really in is the uh, family relationship preservation business. Yeah, with that example, uh, it definitely sounds like there would be drama playing out uh, if planning wasn't in place. Almost sounds like watching a soap opera on TV or something like that. Uh, so they obviously need premium financing uh, or it obviously is something that they should take a strong look at. Could that dial down to someone who might be worth 10 million, 15 million, 20, 30 million? Yeah, great question. So historically, um, premium financing has really been kind of reserved for the decamillionaire uh, population and up. About seven years ago, I went around to several of the insurance carriers and I said, you know, with this this wealth preservation strategy really should be offered to a, a wider population because though you may have to chop off a zero or two at the end of the number, uh, the, the issues are the same, right? So let's take... Let's take uh, a couple in their 40s. Let's say uh, the combined household income is you know a little over half a million dollars. Let's say their net worth is quote unquote only two and a half million, five million, something like that. In in the life insurance world, I was told that people with net worths under the ten million dollar threshold were not sophisticated enough to understand or employ this type of premium finance strategy. And I said, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard because how many of these folks own homes? Oh, the folks that own homes, how many of them purchase those homes using a mortgage loan? So they understand debt as an instrument, as a financial instrument already. It's just a more efficient way to uh, to purchase a, a valuable asset. Uh, same thing with uh, the purchase of automobiles, right? How many people finance the purchase of automobiles? How many people have financed their college education? How many people have financed um, you know, business expansion using a, a business line of credit uh, or, or an SBA loan? So most of these folks that have relatively substantial incomes, uh, multi-six figures and up, have a similar need in, in the effect that if, if the breadwinner passes away and the surviving spouse doesn't have the ability to replace that amount of income, uh, the bills don't change, right? The overhead doesn't change. And so uh, families like that oftentimes need life insurance uh, in the short term to cover the lost income that would occur if the breadwinner was to die prematurely, car accident, cancer, heart attack, something uh, unexpectedly early. However, once those folks get to retirement age, and the kids are full grown, perhaps the mortgage is paid off, perhaps they do not need as much life insurance death benefit. But if you use a particular type of life insurance product, product it accumulates what they call cash value. Think of it almost kind of sort of like a, a, like an investment account embedded inside the life insurance policy. Uh, depending on the type of life insurance policy, uh, that account could grow based on the dividend performance of the insurance carrier, or it could be correlated with some sort of index like the S&P 500 as an example. The nice thing about this, because it's housed inside the life insurance uh, policy, uh, due to IRS tax code section, uh, section 7702, the accumulation of those funds grow tax-free. And then um, during retirement years, the uh, client could start to draw down 
retirement income from that life insurance policy on a tax-free basis as well. So it kind of kills two birds with one stone, right? It, it, it protects the loss of income in the event of a premature death um, of the breadwinner. And then also it can serve as uh, a tax-free retirement instrument. Yeah, that's great. So I've heard then two basic uses of premium financing at a high level. And this, this is advanced work, of course, but uh, liquidity for those uber wealthy in the scenario that you talked about with uh, passing the assets on to uh, siblings and then loss of income for high wage earners. And then at the same time, it could extrapolate itself out to provide a tax-free retirement income. Yes. Sound about right? Absolutely. So who would it not be for? Who's someone out there who might say, hey, this is exciting. I'm going to make this happen. And it's just not appropriate for them. Yeah. So a life insurance policy, again, depending on the type of life insurance policy you use in this type of strategy, uh, some are more flexible than others. Some you can condense the number of years of premium that would be contributed. Uh, some of them you can extend it. Uh, where the what we call unsuitability comes in is when you have a client that is committing to a certain dollar contribution annually, let's say for 10 years as an example. And the question becomes, what happens if that client's income, their personal earned income, takes a drastic nosedive? They, if they are a highly compensated executive, if they get laid off uh, and they go unemployed for a couple of years, or if they are a small business owner, entrepreneur, and their business takes uh, a, a hit you know, financially uh, for a few years, what happens to that life insurance policy if it is not funded with the amount of premium that it should be funded with? That can become a problem. There are several flexibility variables that you can take advantage of. Um, however, for someone that doesn't have a lot of liquid net wealth, right? If they have a high income, but they are not very liquid, in the event that their income dries up and they don't have any liquid to fund it, all of a sudden they need to start pulling these uh, various levers, which really completely derails the original design of using this life insurance policy for its intended use. So that's why typically we want to see the client have enough liquid uh, sitting on the sidelines uh, so that in the event that their earned income gets decreased substantially, they have the funds to continue to fund the strategy the way that it was originally designed uh, to be funded. Um, so I'll give you an example here. If you have a young cardiologist, you know, making five, $600,000 a year, uh, that type of client from an income sustainability standpoint is very different than say, a small business owner that makes widgets, uh, that's making the same five hundred to $600,000 in annual income. And the reason I say that is because even in times of recession, typically cardiologists are not out in front of their clinic with a cup in their hand uh, going broke because of the recession, right? It's almost kind of a recession-proof type of profession. Whereas, say, a small business owner that's making widgets, if regulatory uh, laws change, if the economy changes, if anything in their industry changes... Uh, that small business owner could be out of business uh, within a year and, and may have a very difficult time recovering and rebuilding uh, their company or starting a new venture 
and getting their their profitability up to where their cash flow can continue to uh, to fund you know this type of life insurance strategy. Uh, we always want to look at what are the specifics of the client's uh, profession slash business. What type of income do they have? How sustainable is that income? Uh, how much liquidity they have? Uh, those are all things we want to make sure that we are installing this type of strategy with the right type of client for the right reasons at the right time. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like if we get the suitability right um, and it's correct for the client and accomplishing the thing that they're trying to accomplish, then the the next X factor is with this word financing comes interest rate. And so interest rates today are a little bit different than they have been in the past. And, you know, they're unknown, but they're slightly elevated at this point in time. So how does that affect premium financing for those that it is suitable for? Yeah, no, great point. Over the last just few years here, we've seen a huge increase in borrowing interest rates right across the board, not just the premium financing, but with mortgage loans, with uh, car loans. I mean, um, you name it. Uh, just to give you an example of the uh, the increases in borrowing interest rates, if you look at 30-day average SOFR on January 3rd, 2022, uh, this average SOFR rate was five basis points, meaning 5% of 1%, right? Practically nothing. Uh, fast forward a year later in 2023, uh, January 3rd, 2023, uh, that rate went from five basis points up to 4.12%. And then uh, towards the end of last year, uh, on November 3rd, 2023, the SOFA rate was 5.32%. So we went from virtually zero up to 4% to almost 5.5% uh, within a very short amount of time. Uh, I would say the same thing about the Treasury rate. Uh, the one-year CMT rate at the beginning of 2002 uh, was 38 basis points, so 0.38%. Uh, one year later, it jumped up to 4.72%. And then by the end of last year, uh, it was up to 5.37% um, in November. So it, it's a huge, huge increase. And I don't think anybody, regardless of how smart they pretend to be, I don't think anyone projected the rates would go up that much yeah. in that short amount of time. Mm -hmm. So a lot of folks that were looking at premium financing from a client standpoint, as well as advisors or even my competitors that were selling premium financing, many of them were looking at premium financing as a way to borrow really cheap money and get a pretty massive spread or positive arbitrage, meaning that the cost of borrowing was so much less than the, uh, the financial upside of the increasing value of the policy that uh, you should premium finance because the money was cheap. That's how it was being sold. Yeah. It should never have been sold that way. Even, even back when interest rates were, were that low, I was essentially the only one in our industry that was talking about what happens from a risk standpoint if the borrowing rates uh, increase dramatically and what would happen if at the same time, you know, concurrently, the stock market was down. So the returns would be down and all of a sudden we'd be in a pretty severe negative arbitrage situation. Everyone, all my contemporaries in, the, in, in this industry were saying, oh, Darren, you're being overly dramatic. You're being too negative and pessimistic. That's never going to happen. It happened <laughs> and it's happening right now. Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah. The reason why we've done well, I mean, last year was actually our, our best year in the business in, in 21 years of me being in the insurance industry, I believe, is because we were so transparent up front. We were so educationally based up front that when the these kind of two black swans hit at the same time, uh, the clients were prepared for that. And the clients were educated properly at the point of sale of what these risks may be. The reason why these clients, though, I mean, no one's happy that, that interest rates are so high right now if, if you're using debt as a, as a financial instrument, right? No one's happy about that. Uh, but if they entered the strategy with the understanding that the real strategy was to eke out a small positive arbitrage over time. And when I say over time, we're talking 15, 20, 30, 40 years. When you're looking long-term, historically speaking, uh, most indexes have outperformed uh, the cost of capital, meaning that the borrowing rates over time have been less than what the, the index in those policies uh, would have performed. So uh, we've done some pretty extensive back testing and stress testing from the very beginning. And I think that's why last year, while a lot of other premium financing firms are suffering and you have a lot of clients that are upset and you have a lot of advisors that are freaking out because they have these really upset clients. The reason all that happened was that no one educated the, the client properly in the very beginning. And, and I'm gonna, this is speculation right here, what I'm about to say. I believe the reason is because many people in just sales in general, they conveniently omit the things that they're afraid are going to deter the client or the prospect from buying. That 100% goes against my code of honor and my code of ethics. Uh, the client should fully understand what they're doing, good, bad, and ugly. Sure, there are risks with premium financing. There's risks with any type of uh, investment or, or financial instrument. But if the client really understands the, the, the core fundamentals of why this makes sense over time, short-term, you know, bad times, they, they don't last. And um, when you have a client panicking uh, and ready to pull out, it's usually because they weren't educated properly about what this really was and how this truly worked at inception. Yeah, now, key up what I think I'm hearing you say here about a client who might panic. And, and, and here's the kind of the synopsis that I get is that going into the premium financing strategy, rates are low. As those rates go up, uh, then, of course, the cost associated with financing goes up. And so that's one component. But at the same time, the client is putting up some collateral and that collateral may be in the form of the stock market and the stock market could head south as well. And if those two pieces come together, then the client's going to have to be scrambling for more collateral or to have more cash flow go into this strategy. How did I do? Yes, no, absolutely. You know, the, the collateral piece, that's really the Achilles heel for most clients. I don't care how uh, uh, tough or risk tolerant the client espouses to be at the very beginning. Oh, I mm -hmm. can't kind of risk taker. As soon as they have to write the check or wire the funds, additional funds, that's when they're crying the blues. And then they start pointing fingers and accusing everyone within a hundred mile radius of them of leading them astray. 
understanding that emotional side of human nature, in my estimation, is one of the things that we do a really good job of when we're talking to a client uh, and proposing this as a solution is I want to make sure this is right for this particular client. It's not right for everyone. In fact, it's probably, it's not right for most people, but for the right type of client, this is a match made in heaven. I mean, this is a tailor-made strategy for the right type of client. I'll give you an example of it. Last year, uh, we had a client that was been had been in our strategy for two years. Uh, and last year, things went a little uh, haywire, right? The uh, borrowing rate that we got him into the deal uh, just a few years ago was 1.35%, all in. <laughs> that is incredibly low. Two years later, his renewing uh, borrowing rate was pushing 7%. So going from 1.35% to almost 7%, that's a huge hike. The other problem is that uh, the collateral account that he posted was, was uh, heavily positioned in Amazon and Tesla stock. And it just so happened within that specific 12-month cycle that was in March, Amazon stock and Tesla stock tanked in value 30% during that 12-month segment. That means that the account he posted for collateral or as collateral uh, decreased by about 30%. So he had to true that up um, and he had to transfer uh, or, or post uh, other investment accounts as uh, collateral to, to make up that shortfall. For that particular client, it was not a big deal. And the reason it was not a big deal is because from the very beginning, we looked at his liquidity and we talked about the risks. We talked about what could happen. And he was the right type of client to do this. He was extremely liquid. So for him to, to true up the collateral amount uh, was not a big deal at all. I mean, it's a very, very small part of his overall liquid uh, net worth. Conversely, I've heard of several clients that were financed by, I guess, my competitors, where the advisor comes to me crying the blues saying, hey, my client is getting ready to sue me. They're a million dollars upside down. They don't have the collateral to post. Uh, what they were told from the very beginning was that the collateral requirement was going to be severely less than what it is today. What am I going to do? Can you help me? In certain scenarios, I was actually able to help that advisor and dig themselves out of the hole with the client. And in other cases, there was literally nothing that anyone could do. The client was going to be required to write a big fat check. And when I say big, big fat check, I'm talking about a, a seven-figure check to the bank to true up uh, the shortfall. And as I was told, these clients did not have the ability to stroke a check for a million plus dollars. So this is why sometimes premium financing gets a bad rap, is that it was just abused by the wrong advisor, selling it to the wrong client, being advised by the wrong premium financing intermediary. Um, and everyone was just looking at uh, at the payday, right? The commission payday as opposed to the client's best interests. You know, that's, I think, part of the premium finance life insurance industry. It uh, can sometimes attract a greedy, overzealous advisor because the commission amounts on these policies, because they're so big, is pretty substantial. You know, they could be multiple six figures and sometimes seven figures uh, in commissions. That that amount that's paid out is not to the client's detriment at all. I mean, that's all built into the the agreement between the advisors and the insurance carriers. So that that's not like it's an overcharge to the client in any way, shape, or form. It's just that uh, because the policies are so large that that commission amount scales up based on the size of the policy.
So it's kind of the good news, bad news, right? It's like a double-edged sword. Uh, the good news uh, from a business perspective is that uh, it can be a, a very lucrative and uh, very uh, financially prudent way to structure a financial advisor's practice because it can generate some pretty substantial revenue. Uh, the downside is that I have found that oftentimes that attracts uh, the wrong type of advisors that are not advising whatsoever. They're just selling and closing and uh, convincing clients to do this under possibly some some false pretenses. And I, I don't mean to sound accusational, but uh, I'm just telling you from personal experience from what I've seen, a large majority of premium finance life insurance advisors are structuring this completely wrong for the wrong client. Well, it sounds like what you're explaining is to sell this to someone is not the right approach. To be able to advise of the benefits of using premium financing and at the same time explaining the, the good and the bad and what the uh, risks are is going to be ever important. But as important as that, I'm also hearing you say that first year review, that second year review, having a backup plan, understanding that nothing stays static and interest rates don't stay low, that in moving forward, uh, you need to understand what you're what you bought, you understand the variables involved, and you have a backup plan. But as important as anything is to come back to the table a year later. Uh, at anniversary and go over uh, all aspects of the plan, the strategy, and why it continues to be important and valued by the client. And to me, that's kind of unique in this industry. In a lot of cases, I've heard people don't even come back and talk to them the next year. That That is an unfortunate part of, uh, of this industry. And I would say really any industry where folks have the ability to earn a, a substantial income. I want to say, when I say substantial, we're talking half a million, million dollars and up, you know, that, that type of uh, compensation or the ability to earn that type of compensation. Uh, those types of industries I've found oftentimes attract money hungry people, unfortunately, it's just the, 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 the way it is. But yeah, if, if done properly and done ethically and done uh, from an honorable standpoint, uh, putting the client first. Uh, again, this can be one of the most valuable strategies they can implement as far as their overall estate planning and estate tax planning. Um, my background, just some kind of on a personal level, uh, ethnically, I'm Japanese. I come from a descendants of samurai. And samurai uh, lived by a, a very specific code of honor. Uh, that code of honor uh, is called the Bushido Code. Uh, it's essentially uh, seven virtues that samurai lived by. Uh, one of those virtues is uh, referred to as Makoto, which uh, translation is honesty. But the, the concept of the English word honesty extends far beyond uh, what you might look up in, in Webster's Dictionary. Uh, to samurai, uh, they said that samurai never used the phrase, uh, I give you my word. Uh, they never used the term promise. Because for samurai, to say and to do were one and the same. And that really, really got me enthused about my culture. Because, uh, you know, when someone says, well, I give you my word, or I, I promise you, I promise you I'll do this. 
What it does is it negates everything that you said before that in your entire life to where all those other things where I didn't give you my word, where I just said that I was going to do something for you. I didn't really mean it, right? I only mean it when I say I give you my word or when you say I promise. It's like a differentiating between, well, here's where I'm kind of sort of committing to, uh, but you should trust me and believe me anyway. And then, oh, but here, you know, here's what you really should trust me. The samurai, there was no distinction between the two. I actually wrote a book about this a couple of years ago called The Takeo Effect, where I talked a lot about these uh, Japanese samurai principles and, and how they can be woven into um, standard business practice. But um, yeah, in, in premium financing uh, and really in, in any sort of financial services industry, this uh, transparent, honorable way of serving your clients really should be at the highest, highest, highest level. And unfortunately, oftentimes it's, it's not. Yeah, the, the thing that I, I love listening to your process and the way that you explain to the clients, they fully understand what the uh, what the risks are. But not only that, they also understand the background, the product, the background of the relationships of all parties involved. And with the emphasis of how this strategy may benefit them, uh, as well as what the the ups and the downs are and uh, those things like that. So really love that. How did you ever get involved in this particular line of work? What uh, attracted you to premium financing specifically? Sure. Yeah. Uh, 21 years ago is when I got into the insurance um, industry. I started an employee benefits firm. We built that firm up to just, uh, just shy of $40 million in annual recurring premium. Uh, we had 22 advisors. We were number one in the country with several insurance carriers uh, concurrently. About a decade in, I started another uh, agency, this time focusing on uh, life insurance. It was a sister company uh, housed out of the same um, um, office space that we were in. Built that up to uh, our, our main hub was in Orange County, California. We had about a half a dozen offices spread in um, other cities and states, uh, Manhattan, New York, Dallas, Texas, uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, et cetera. Uh, and we got that up to just shy of 60 advisors. And we're doing a lot of life insurance business, uh, primarily primarily over the phone. Uh, this is before COVID, before Zoom, before anyone was doing this. Everyone said, you can't you can't advise life insurance and sell life insurance to business owners over the phone, never having met them. This is a relationship-driven business. Well, kind of proved everyone wrong there. So things were going ex exceedingly well. And I was introduced to premium financing uh, initially, actually, as a client. And um, I thought the strategy was very, very interesting, but my own client experience was so awful, meaning there were so many important details that were omitted up front that as we got closer and closer, you know, executing this transaction, um, all these unknowns were sprung on me at the last minute and it really put a sour taste in my mouth. So I did a ton of research and looked at what all these premium financing uh, intermediary firms were doing and how they were doing it. And I didn't like the process. I'm not saying these people were bad people, right? We just all have our preferences. And my preference is to be 100% transparent upfront. I want to really understand the moving parts. A lot of people say uh, in this industry, they advise uh, life insurance uh, agents and financial advisors 
to, uh, you know, K-I-S-S. Keep it simple, stupid. Well, my response to that is there's nothing simple about premium finance life insurance, stupid. <laughs> okay, this is a very sophisticated, very yeah. involved uh, strategy. <laughs> And when someone is 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 buying a, a 10, 20, 50, $100 million life insurance policy, um, I would think they would want to know how the moving parts work. I would think they would want to understand uh, not only the probability of risk, but the consequence of risk, which is a big differentiation between those two. Um, and so we really built our platform based on this educationally based, mathematically based um, uh, strategy. So at the end of the day, I don't want the client to decide to move forward because of a personal relationship. I don't want them to move forward uh, because it just sounds good. I don't want them to move forward um, not understanding everything because if we are able to educate the client properly where they fully understand uh, what it is that they might be doing with this and why they would be doing it, um, if and when they decide to move forward, um, they know in their heart of hearts, this is the one of the best decisions they ever made in, in terms of their overall estate plan. And again, it's just, it's about doing the right thing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what a great overview on premium financing. Um, just top to bottom, lots of good information there. So we're going to bring you back next week then, Darren. And uh, on our next episode, uh, we'll get into some details and discuss uh some of your real world examples of how you use premium financing uh, in financial plans and really talk about two basic strategies here, the estate planning legacy that you were talking about earlier, and then uh, maybe take a deeper dive into that tax-free retirement income. Um, so we really look forward to taking that deep dive and getting into the next episode with you. That sounds great. Look forward to it. All right. Well, Darren and Ken, thank you for your insights into premium finance, life insurance, and the roles it can play. Now, listeners, we hope you have found this information valuable, and we remind you to follow this podcast for more proactive tax strategies in future episodes, including another episode with Darren. I'm Patrice Sikora. Thank you for being with us. And until next time. Thank you for listening to the Proactive Tax Strategies podcast. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit our website at www.pinnaclefinancialwealthmanagement.com or give us a call at 321-454-3623. Investment advisory services offered through Arlette Wealth Management AWA, an SEC registered investment advisor. Pinnacle Financial Wealth Management AWA and AWM are independent entities. Discussions are meant to be general in nature and may not be suitable for all investors. Please consult a tax professional regarding any tax implications.